Hello, everyone. <laughs> so we got a reading from First Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special, special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Thank you, Jalen. Um, well, everybody, that's our passage for this evening. If you have a Bible, I recommend turning to the book of First Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2 and uh, verse 1 through 10, like Jalen read. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there, the passage will be up on the screen. But also, I think uh, it's good to make sure everybody knows if, if you don't like have a physical Bible, um, we want you to have one. And there's a shelf back there. Um, these, it's actually crates that are all put together, which interesting note. How many of y'all know Brian Howard? Anybody know Brian Howard? Yeah, yeah. Or know of him. So uh, Brian Howard, the handyman Brian Howard that he is, he built those like seven years ago. They're still standing. Yeah. Yeah. Commend him. Commend him next time you see him. Anyway, they're full of Bibles. If you need a Bible, please go take one or go talk to AJ or Nikki and we'll definitely get you connected. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1, and it starts like this, <clears throat> therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, one moment, yeah, yeah, that's the right one, okay, sorry, I was like, wait, am I starting in the middle? No, I'm not, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. That verse, uh, verse 3 right there, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Even as Jalen was reading it, that just like jumped out to me. You've tasted that he is good. You have tasted, you have experienced God, and he is good. Like up until this point in this letter, uh, as Peter's been writing, um, it's been he's been recounting for the people he's writing to, telling them of the overwhelming goodness of God. He, he's reiterating it because they know the goodness of God. The people he's writing to, they are a people, a church who have put their faith in Jesus. They know the goodness of God. And he reminds them. 
He's reminding them that they know the good news of salvation that has come to them through Jesus Christ. They know, they know that this is not something they have earned, but is a complete upheaval of what they deserve. They have tasted the goodness of God, and it is excellent, excellent. It's so good to be reminded because sometimes we grow stale. We forget what we've tasted, what we've experienced, and how good he is. It was true for these people. It's true for me. I'm sure at times it's true for you. My assumption for those of us here in this room, or at least most of us, um, related to this specifically, is that you have put your faith in Jesus. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, this might be like, I haven't tasted, I haven't experienced the goodness of God. And I'm glad you're here if that's you. And I want you to know it. I want you to know him because he is so, so good. But for those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, at some point in your life, you tasted, you experienced God. You experienced how good he is. Amen? So, Reflect on that. Like slow down and think about the times that he has moved in your life, where you've seen him, where you've experienced him. Remember those moments when his, his love just enfolded your heart. Don't ignore them. Bring yourself back into that. Like even imagine it, the whole scene what you felt and what was going on. Maybe the way he redeemed you. The growth you've seen in your life. The, the way he caught you when you messed up. And he was like, it's okay, my son. It's okay, my daughter. The peace you felt. Wh- whatever element of God's goodness you have experienced, no matter how small, do not let go of it. Remember it. He is good. Oh, back to our passage, right? So it starts with, therefore. Therefore. That's where it started, not with he is good. But, therefore. And we always have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore, right? All right. (laughs) What's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's coming out of Peter, reiterating the goodness of God, and that, that these people know, like they know the goodness of God. They know the good life that God wants for them. And Peter's explaining to them, he's reiterating for them what that looks like. God is good. He saved you and he has good plans and purposes for you. And all of it hinges on this reality of grace. The first, first chapter of First Peter is, is hinging on the grace of God, the love of God. And ultimately the question we can ask if we look at verses 1 through 12 of the first chapter is, if grace, if love has been given to you, then what? If grace, if love, then what? What, what does that mean, that God loves me, that God is showing me grace? How, what, how does that change my life? And the answer that he gives back in verses 13 through 25 is that if grace, then live sober-minded. Live uh, mentally self-disciplined to the realities of God's grace. If God has shown you grace, then live in a way that is aware of that grace. Don't ignore it. 
He then lines out uh, basically what the journey from salvation, that moment that you first tasted the goodness of God, no matter how small, no matter how deep you've tasted it, from that moment to the day of glory where we're, where we're secure at home with Jesus, where, where his goodness is, there is no hindrance from us knowing it. There's no sin within our heart. There's no distraction. It's just there he is. And oh my goodness. <laughs> Maybe that's why we say instead of like, oh my God, people say, oh my goodness, because he is good. Oh, I've never made that connection before, but I'm rolling with it. Oh my goodness. I'm going to tell Isaac from now on. No, no, you say, oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay, okay. All right. So. To journey well from salvation to glory, Peter lines out uh, these one, two, three, four, five, two, four things. <laughs> he says to hope fully, hope fully, live purely, walk reverently, and love earnestly. Hope fully, live purely, walk reverently, and love earnestly. And along the way, God will be with you. So that's what's lined out. That's what we see leading up to our therefore. Therefore, <laughs> God has shown you his amazing grace through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And because of the grace and God's love for us, we can hope fully in God, live purely, walk reverently, love earnestly. And therefore, he goes, get rid of all this nasty stuff, people. Get rid of it from your life. Move on from it. He's like, in view of God's grace, grow up in your salvation because it does a lot of good. In view of God's grace, grow up in your salvation. Don't remain an infant. Grow up in it because it will do a lot of good. Not just for you, but for the whole world and for the purpose that God has for you, as we're going to talk about tonight. So he said, rid yourself. And to rid ourselves implies that we are to put something else on. If we're to move on from one thing, it's not usually just to be naked. It's to like put on something else. So if we're putting away malice, then we are to put on love. If we were to be filled with truth, we've got to be rid of deceit. If we're to be rid of hypocrisy, then we've got to put on integrity. If you're going to put on or be filled with gratitude, you've got to put away envy. If you're going to be filled with praise, pray. <laughs> Just the word makes me smile. Like you can't, Can you say praise without smiling? Hallelujah. Thank you. <laughs> you've got to put off slander. Because we, we, can't, we can't have out of the same mouth the two different things coming. Out of the same heart, two different things coming. And so Peter's saying, look, come on, don't be an infant that's got all this stuff going on. Be sober-minded, be clear, be determined, be self-disciplined. Put off this other stuff and put on the stuff that you were made for. So good. In view of God's grace. Grow up in your salvation because it does a lot of good and because grace is an opportunity for holiness. I mentioned this last week, came about it last week, that grace is an opportunity for holiness. It's not a responsibility to holiness. It's an opportunity to it. We get to be holy. It's 
not that we have to be. It's that we get to be. Ah, man, I don't want to make this world worse. I want to make it better. And it's only through grace, through God's love and the giving of his Holy Spirit that we even get the doors open to us to actually truly make the world better and not just make it worse. You know, without him at best, we're like, we're just trying to keep status quo. But status quo is pretty rough. You know, we might have a little here, but then we're going to dip down here and it's going to go all, all over the place. But it's only, only through grace and through the love of Jesus Christ and walking in his spirit and surrendering to it that the, the ups and downs of life actually give us a trajectory of holiness, of growing, of that 10 years from now, I'm not the same man I am now. See, having tasted the Lord's goodness, we are to grow into salvation as we continue, continue to be nourished by the word of God and the spirit of God. The readers of 1 Peter are a people in process. They're under construction, just like you and I. A key word then for them, as it is for us, is hope. It's hope. Like the people that this letter is written to, we might look back on our lives, on a dubious and futile past, full of regret. I mean, you may look back on your morning and have a regret. Have something like, oh man, why did, how did I end up there again? Why couldn't I, where did that anger come from? What was that about? Yet even in the midst of a life where there are regrets that we look back on, we can look forward in Jesus to an absolutely certain future. And that means that right here in the present is a time of living hope. We are receiving the outcome of our faith right here and now. We are becoming holy. So I am encouraged by this. I am really encouraged by this. And I hope you are too. Wherever you're at, it's only the beginning. No matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, it's only the beginning. He is not done yet. If you have tasted the Lord's goodness and seen his hand of refinement and redemption in your life, it's only the beginning. That was only the beginning. He's not done yet with you. How can we teach what we do not know? How can we call people to hope in Christ when we ourselves have not fully hoped in him? If the Lord is good, then... The rest of this, the rest of this world, the rest of this, <laughs> like the mess that's within my own heart, the failures, my like the things that I'm like, Lord, I can't change this. Like, where is this even coming from? It's so, ah, if we put our hope and our faith in Jesus and all the rest of this stuff, all my weaknesses and failures. It's light and momentary. I can handle it because I don't have to. He's doing it for me. He's going to handle it. I can bear this heart that I have and all its ugliness and brokenness and its weakness. And I can handle this because where it is right now is not how it's always going to be. Not just one day in a distant future. But like literally, as tonight goes on, this heart is in process. The Lord is doing a work. He's not wasting anything so long as we'll let him put it to use. 
tomorrow can be different than today. The wise and skillful hand of the potter, that's the Lord, is ready and willing to keep shaping that lump of clay that is each of our hearts into something useful. Each of our lives into something useful, no matter what we've done in the past. He is capable of making something beautiful, no matter how dried out, crumbly, crusty, whatever that lump looks like. He knows what to do with it. If we are going to do these things that Peter is calling us to, if we are to journey well, we need to crave the word of God, having our minds transformed by it. We need to surrender to the grace of the presence of God's spirit having our, our hearts transformed by him, hoping fully in him, living purely, walking reverently, loving earnestly, knowing that he will not leave us. He will comfort us along the way. He is not done with us. As we've gone about this series, uh, walking through First Peter, one of the things we wanted to do was just show you our work. Anytime we get up here, kind of show you, hey, this is how we arrive at the things we arrive at. And so something that I have found to be absolutely true is this. A responsible pursuit of understanding Scripture is not done alone. It's done in conversation with others. A responsible pursuit of understanding Scripture is not done alone. It's done in conversation with others. And it's not just that that's where responsible pursuit of understanding Scripture is. Often that's where the power can be. A phrase that Sarah has championed at times is uh, responsible exegesis is dialogical and done in diverse community. This was my translation. (laughs) So in preparation for this message tonight, here's what I did. I called up my friend Dick Thompson. I gave him a call. I set up a time for him and I to get together. And we went to Brent's Deli. Um, It was delicious, in case you were wondering. Uh, We had salads. I had the Chinese chicken salad. No, he had the Chinese chicken salad. I had the Santa Fe salad. Yeah, that's anyway. So it was great. Dick and I sat down at Brent's last Thursday uh, for a late lunch, and we ate our salads. We shot the breeze, you know, how's life, what's going on. We enjoyed each other's company, and then we pulled out onto the table a Bible, and we talked through this passage. We sat there and we explored it together. What does this mean? (laughs) What is that all about? What do you think about this? We observed, we interpreted, and we applied. And we did it all in the context of conversation. It was done together. There were things that were arrived there for both of us that wouldn't have been arrived, wouldn't have gotten to in that conversation if it wasn't the two of us together exploring it. As I talk through all of this stuff tonight, everything that we've going through in this passage, it all came out of that conversation. It all came out of Dick and I just sitting there for an hour and 45 minutes, just looking at the scripture and going, what? Hmm, you know, that makes me think of this. Wow, what about this? You know, hold on. You know, like, whoa, Revelation 22. Did you read that? Oh my gosh. You know, like, we're just going back and forth all through it. And it was wonderful and beautiful. And for me, this is so personal. <laughs> this idea of, of exploring scripture and community is, is, is personally important, not just for coming up here to speak, but for actually the shaping of my life, 
many of the most significant inflection points in my life happened it, like this, in this sort of a context. And you know, the life of a faithful follower of Jesus, um, I'm going to ask Autumn to put a picture up here. Uh, we often think it looks like the top one. Uh, this is the top one. That's what a faithful follower of Jesus, this is what your life is going to look like. Or, or, okay, well, we understand, like, you know, hard things happen. And so um, my life won't look like that, but my walk with Jesus will. My faith will just look like that. There's never going to be a dip. I've made it this far. I can only go up from here. I've answered three doubts, so I'm never going to have another. Whatever it might be, I've conquered that sin. I'm done with it. It's never going to come up again in my life because I've figured it out. We think that's what life following Jesus looks like. We think that's what a faithful follower of Jesus, that's what it should look like. And if, if, if we're not looking like that, then, oh, man, things are falling apart. My life is crumbling. Was I ever a believer? And I'll just say this, this fallacy is why it's so important to remember when and where and how we have tasted the goodness of God. You have. You have tasted the goodness of God. And no matter if, you, right now you're like, I don't, I don't. I'm not experiencing his goodness. I don't see it. I don't feel it, whatever it might be. But you have. And you can know that God doesn't start things he doesn't finish. He is with you and he's for you. So, get that out of your head. <laughs> you can try your hardest. I think we'll all kind of eventually stumble into it. But at least you got the knowledge. And in time, you work it down into your heart when you need it. The reality, though, is that the life of a faithful follower of Jesus, for some reason that's hard to say, is more like this bottom one. Am I in the way? Hopefully you can see it. Right? You got like the little guy on the bike. I, for some reason, I don't know why it's like up there. It's like, wow, I am huge, and I am on this bike. There's nothing in my way. I think there's actually something to that, how often we think, I got this. That's the reality of something that God's confronting in my heart right now. So Brian, you don't got this. This is my work, not yours. Stop thinking you're in charge. Stop thinking you can fix it. Stop thinking that you, you are able to do anything here. You just bring your fishes and loaves and let me do the work. Stop trying to go out there and, and strategize how to, well, if I peel it this way, <laughs> like, maybe it'll work. Somebody will eat a fin. That'll satisfy. God's like, no, no, no. I've got so much more planned. So much deeper, so much better. The reality, we're that tiny little guy going, Lord, help me. And he says, my son, my daughter, you got it, I'm with you. Let's go. The, the reality is for me that many of those little flag moments, they happened in the context of conversation. Or they came about through the context of sitting down with others and exploring the word together. And not just trying to understand the word, but thinking, Lord, what do we do with this? What does this mean for my life and how I live? And man, the way that the Lord used that community, that coming together, it's changed my life. Like the life-altering, perspective-flipping, heart-shaping moments that moved my entire trajectory, those flag moments. Many happened in this place of co-discovery. 
being with another person or a couple of other people and together looking at the scriptures, discussing, observing, interpreting, and then actually applying it to our lives and collectively seeing the Lord work. Following God is not an intellectual pursuit alone. It's a life lived. You can know the things. Now go do them and actually see the power of it come to pass. See the Lord come and dwell among you and do a work here. Because that's his heart. That's his target. It's not to make your actions look great. He's like, I want to see this become whole. And the only way that's going to happen is if you surrender to me. If you bring yourself to me and let me do the work that needs to be done here. So if you can go back to that show your work slide. It'd be helpful. Thank you. This, this sentence, it can happen in small groups, which we got small groups around here. Or it can happen with someone in your life, whoever it might be, Dick Thompson, that's an example for me, my wife often, honestly, even my, my son, he's five, and there's times where like, you open the word and it's like, wow, my child, wow, Lord, okay, Whew. little Jesus storybook Bible's cutting deep, all right. It can happen in so many places and ways. It might even be somebody who's sitting next to you right now. And you know, the reality is that whoever it is, they don't need to have all the answers. And neither do you. As the Lord said himself, he said, where two or three are gathered in, in my name, I will be there. So just gather. Get together. And he will reveal himself to you. He'll be with you. You don't need to have a scholar. <laughs> you just need two willing hearts in the word of God. So. This. It's what I did for this passage tonight. It's how we got all this stuff. Sitting down with Mr. Dick Thompson. Oh, okay. Verse 4. Jump into it. As you come to him. That's Jesus. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. It's a quote from Isaiah. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were destined for. All right. Looking at that passage, looking at that section there. Anyone else seeing a theme of like stones and construction, something like that? Hopefully you're picking that up. I picked that up. Dick and I did as we were there. All right. Stones, living stones, capstones, cornerstones, construction, building. There's something going on here. So a second show your work thing that I want to bring to all of your attention is when you see a metaphor or analogy in the scriptures, 
explore the intricacies of that task, that item, that truth. You get to know it. See, when there's analogy or, an, or metaphor being used, we've got to seek to understand how the original audience would have understood that work or that item or that reality. If it is being used to describe a spiritual reality, before we can understand that spiritual reality, we need to understand the physical thing. We've got to understand what the physical thing is to understand what it's supposed to be alluding about the spiritual world. So you got to jump in and figure it out. And how do we do that? Well, the probably the three most common ways. One is personal experience. Personal experience is the most common. Like if, if you know, like how often in Scripture do we see uh, God talking about, or Jesus, the, just all in the Scriptures, talking about light and darkness? Well, they, they're talking about spiritual realities using a physical thing, light and darkness. Uh, how do we translate what is meant spiritually about light and darkness? Well, because we live in this world and have experienced light and darkness. <laughs> so we understand light and darkness and the realities of walking in light and walking in darkness. And, and then we can, oh, I see what's being said about the spiritual realities at play here. So personal experience is a big thing. The other is just by asking others. You know, uh, if the parable of the sower, where it's talking about scattering seed, and if you're like, I am not a gardener. I will not pull weeds. Dirty hands, yuck, whatever it is, I don't know. But if that's not your thing, and you're like, I don't understand how seeds work, which, come on, you went to school, you get it. But you could ask someone, like, go ask your grandma who gardens and be like, hey, tell me about scattering seed. What, like, if seed fell in rocks, what does that mean? Or how does that play out? If seed fell in, like, really good, rich soil, like, what does that mean? What if there's a bunch of weeds in there? How does that play out? How does that affect the seed that you planted? Go ask somebody. And finally, there's research. We all got the Google machine, you know? Just <laughs> Google it. Figure it out helpful. And one of the intricacies here, though, is that at times we need to understand not just how it happens today, but how did it happen back then? So as you uh, come across metaphor or analogy in the scriptures, explore it. Uh, seek to understand the physical thing before you jump to conclusions about the spiritual thing. Make sure you understand the physical thing as it's at. As Dick and I sat in Brent, we collaborated, <laughs> bringing together our personal experiences uh, with building things and stonemasons and how all this stuff plays out. And then I did a little research to confirm our estimations. And we're pretty smart. And we were right. <laughs> but it was really, really helpful. So let's look at the different references here to stone construction. And let's talk about them. First, verse 4, as you come to him, to Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Okay, so let's look at living stones. What is a living stone? What is this all about? As Dick and I looked at this, one of the things that we first were like, okay, it's living stones. Well, before I even get to like living stones, just what is a stone? What is it, what is it referencing here? How is it being played out? Well, stone is a building material. All right. So, a building material. Uh, what are these living stones being built into? Well, a spiritual house, all right? 
Interesting. And that led Dick and I on a little bit of a rabbit trail, taking us to Genesis, Revelation, took us all over the scriptures. But it was fruitful and it was good because we're thinking, what is this spiritual house? Well, the reality is that all over the scriptures is this truth that's displayed. And I'm just going to read one passage for you. And it's not just in specific passages. It's actually like the whole narrative of the scriptures is this reality. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 6.19, which Paul writes this. Do you, or remember last week, this is actually a plural you, so I'm going to read it like this. Do y'all not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in y'all? Whom y'all have received from God? Don't y'all know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Temples. So, what are these stones being built into? The spiritual house is a temple. And what is a temple? Well, simply a temple is where God dwells. Where God dwells and where people can come and dwell as well. A temple is where God dwells with his people. So, it says here, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house, are being built into a temple, a place of God's dwelling where people can meet with him. So if we... If the people of God are the stones with which God is building his temple, then we are becoming the temple. We are becoming the place where God engages people. So that means it's through us that God reaches the world. It's through us that God is going to reach the world. We are the living stones. We're living stones. We are walking, talking, breathing stones with which God is building his dwelling here on earth. We, as a collective, are being built into the place and time where others encounter the risen Savior. What a wonderful thing. So, living stones, a building material used to build temples. The temple of God, the place where God meets with others. Continues. Verse 6, for, scripture, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, that's in Israel, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him, Jesus, will never be put to shame. That's a quote out of Isaiah. Verse 7, now to you who believe, this stone, this person, Jesus, is precious. If you believe in him, this stone is so precious to you. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's a quote out of Psalms. So, if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've tasted his goodness even for an ounce, you know how precious he is. You know how important of a cornerstone he is. But if you have not put your faith in Jesus, and this is not in any way a put down, because we all were in this place at some point. The reality is, until we taste how good he is, he's just a random stone laying around. It's just a rock. It's just a thing. Something for us to stumble over. And that's it. Until we see who he is and how important he is, and that he is the stone. Not just a stone, he is the stone upon which everything else is built. Until we come to that place, he won't be precious to us. And he won't be precious to the people who don't believe that. So, don't be mad at people who don't care about Jesus. Tell them about him. 
Show them him. Show them how wonderful and precious of a stone he is because of the way that he has changed and altered and shaped your life as you have aligned yourself to him. Show him. Show him to others. So cornerstone, that's a theme here, obviously. Cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? Sorry, that was a big sniffle. Well, a cornerstone is the reference from which the entire foundation and ultimately the building is built. The cornerstone is the reference from which the entire foundation and ultimately the, corners, uh, the building is built. So if I'm going to build a building, one of the first things I'm going to do, I'm going to clear the land, make the space real level. I've probably got some plans because I'm a smart guy and I don't, I count the costs. <laughs> you know, I think about what I'm going to build. How big is this going to be? Do I have enough stones? How big of an area do I need? We think about what we're going to build, and that God thinks about what, he, what he's going to build. He's not aimless. He's thought about it. And what you do with the cornerstone is you, you lay it all out, and the first stone you put down is the cornerstone. You pick a corner of the building, and you, and you get just the right stone. It's got to be the perfect one. And you've got to get it in just the right place. Because off of that stone, every other brick or rock is just going to line up off it. And if you don't get it right, the whole building is going to be off. The whole building is going to be out of square or misaligned. And so even just in laying that stone, the perfection with which you have to do it is incredible. You get plumb lines out and you're like, ah, you, you got to get it just right. And in fact, like for a long time, I think it still happens on the East Coast. It's a tradition. Um, when you lay the cornerstone of a building, there's like a huge ceremony. It's a huge deal, which is really funny because I think of like a whole bunch of engineers being like, hmm, how do we do this? Math, okay. Hmm, plum. And you've got like a crowd watching you. <laughs> you know, think of like thousands of people and they're like, hmm, ah, uh, uh, you know, and they're like, uh-huh. And at some point somebody rises up and goes, it's done. And the crowd goes, yeah, <laughs> we did it. They laid the cornerstone. This building's going to be great. It's a huge party. Laying the cornerstone's a really big deal, and it's really hard. And it's really, really particular. It's got to be just right. So a picture of what this looks like. So this is a, a building that's being built, a foundation that's being laid. And you can tell. So see right down here near these pink strings? That's the cornerstone. That's the first one they laid. They worked hard to get that right. And even these little sticks and all this stuff, all of that, only exists to get that cornerstone right. They use that to make sure the cornerstone was right. They don't necessarily need it that much beyond the cornerstone. They got some strings kind of lined it up. But for the most part, once you get the cornerstone right, everything else just lines up off of it. You just go from there. And you grab all the rocks you can, you put them in, and, and it just lines up. There's another picture of this same building, the same foundation. This is a little bit longer, a little bit, they've made some progress, right? You can see the, you can kind of see the cornerstone down at the bottom. And, and everything is just built off of that one stone. It is the reference for everything else. Everything else has to line up to it to be right. Does that not sound like our lives and Jesus? That God would be so particular to put him in the place and way he did and to live exactly the right way and to do exactly what needed to happen and not just to like have it happen, but he even prophesied way below, way, way before he had plans. He's like, 
I got this building I'm going to I'm going to make and it's going to be awesome and the cornerstone, wow, you guys. Wow, it's going to be perfect. And everything built off of it will be perfect. Everything that aligns to it will be just right. But if you don't align to it, something's going to be off. Something's not going to quite be right. Align to it and man, this building's going to be great. So, one other thing, notice all the piles of rock. See that? If you can go back to the other photo as well. Notice, rock, piles and piles of rock. When I uh, lived up in the mountains, Forest Falls is a place that, like, is just rock. It's rock everywhere. Like, the first house that my wife and I had, um, we were like, I'm like, I'm going to have a little, like, I'm going to have some flowers, a flower bed. That sounds nice. It was terrible because you're like, all right, you got like, you know, just the little tiny flower thing, you know, and it's like, oh, I'll put it right there, and you take just a little spade, and it's like, clink, okay, not there, clink, okay, maybe not there, like everywhere it goes, just rock, even like the topsoil is thin, and it looks like it's just right, and you're like, clink, and you're like, oh, you know what, I'm just going to make it here, I'll, I'll dig this rock out, and you keep going, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, how big is this rock? <laughs> There's rock everywhere, and so of course, it's the building material of choice. Like way back in the 1800s, they built everything with rock. They just would go down to the creek, get a bunch of rocks, and start building their house. And it's really cool. It's really cool. The crazy thing, too, is that it still happens today. And, and when I worked up there, there's this one guy who lived up on the mountain, and it's like everybody knew him. He's the one guy who knows how to build with this rock. He's like the one old timer, and the dude was old. But he knew how to do it. And so anytime uh, a foundation would get cracked or uh, a wall somewhere was, was in disrepair that was built in this way where, where you've just got these stones set up in each other and on each other and, and little stones wedged in there, this was the guy who was called. And I remember one time uh, watching him do his work, and like I said, the dude's old. He had like real old man strength. But he would have this little pickup truck, a little Toyota pickup truck. He'd back it up down to the creek, and he'd just go down there. He'd just mosey around, and he'd, like, pick up rocks and put them in there, pick up others. He'd load up his whole truck. He'd drive back up to wherever he's building this wall or foundation or whatever it is, and he would stand at the back of the truck, and he would just pick through it. Slowly, perceptively, he would just pick up a rock and kind of turn it, turn it, look at it, set it down. Pick up another one, look at it, hold it up to the spot where it needed to go, where he needed to fill, set that one down. And he'd do this until he found the right one. And I was amazed at times where, like, the wall looked so clean and nice, and, like, some of the rocks, and he'd, like, pick up a rock and, like, no way, that's, that one's terrible. That's, that's the wrong one, dude. And he'd, like, look at it, look at it, look at it, and then he'd, like, work on it, get it, just keep moving stuff, grab another little rock, he'd keep moving. And he'd step away, and I'd be like, that's terrible. That was a terrible choice. But he'd keep working, you know, like come back a few days later, and it's like, whoa, how did that happen? Look at that whole wall. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's perfect. It was amazing. Every rock was used. Every rock. And not one was put aimlessly in place. It was always put purposefully perfectly, no matter how misshapen or wild or whatever it looked like. So here's a picture of um, 
uh, up in Forest Falls. That's the clubhouse, if you've ever been up to Forest Home. Um, and this is a really old photo, and you can just see that, see that kind of retaining wall at the bottom? That's the sort of thing I'm talking about, where that was a foundation that was built. And there's no mortar in that. That's just rocks, carefully and perfectly stacked. And that whole building and that whole thing, it's still there. Like a hundred and something years later, it's still there on that same foundation. Every stone is put to perfect use. Every single stone is put to perfect use. All it's got to do is be aligned to that cornerstone. And God, the meticulous and perfect crafter, builder, mason, is finding exactly the right place for you and for your life. Your life is not aimless. It is not lost in this building of a temple. He's going to use you, all of you, the crags, the weird pokey out parts. He's going to use it. Verse 9. Goes like this, but you, you are a chosen people, a chosen people. Okay, um, we're coming out of uh, a reference here in verse eight. We're in verse nine right here, right? But in verse eight, uh, he was referencing those who trip over the stone, who who don't believe, who fall over it, uh, who have rejected Jesus and not aligned themselves to him, and thus they stumble. They become unuseful. They, they, they are discarded in the building of this temple. But notice what Peter says. He says, but you, that's not you. Oh, those that have tasted that the Lord is good, that's not you. No matter how small of a taste you've had of him, that's not you. But you... You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter, before this these verses, he's setting it all up with this like temple, uh, this vision of a temple, the dwelling of God built on Christ. And then he explains in verse nine here, what does that mean? What does that look like? Okay, so you're the temple of God. Great. How do I do that? What does that mean? And he gives the answer very clearly. It looks like priesting. Remember verse 4, where it also said, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is a priest? I think we have so many ideas come to our mind, like, you know, pop culture or whatever it might be, and it's like, priest is, uh, is an outfit. <laughs> but in reality, a priest is so much more than a position. It's actually a vocation. A vocation. It's a vocation, not a position. 
I love how Dick said this. He, he was, he, we were sitting at the table, and he's like, you know, priesting, it really, or priest, it really should be a verb. The only way to understand it is if we make it a verb. To priest, which means that we are in between. <laughs> we're in between. We have something to do. What makes you a priest and I a priest isn't our title. It's what we do. And what do we do? We come in between. We seek out the places of great suffering in order to bring God into those places. You are a priest. And priests seek out the places of great suffering in order to bring God into those places. Priesting is to bring the love and the transformational power of God into the spaces that are missing it. And God aims to redeem. He aims to restore and we are one of the means with which his light, his love, is carried into the dark and lonely places, into those dark and lonely hearts. God means to put an end to evil, to redeem, to restore, right? And God's people, you and I, you and I, are the ones to bring it to bear. As priests, we seek out the places of darkness, to bring light and love. And then, also as priests, the second role is on behalf of others, we lift up the cries of those in pain to God. We bring God into the lives of those in this world, and we bring them to God. That is the act of priesting. It is God who makes this possible, and it is a great privilege. It is a great privilege for all of us. It is a great purpose that we have. Remember, grace is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to be a priest. And what a wonderful, wonderful opportunity it is. One thing Dick pointed out when we were sitting there that, like, I was like, whoa. He was like, you know, this work of priesting, I, I think it really looks like loving enemies. Like, what? He's like, the pinnacle expression of this idea of priesting is to pray for those who persecute you. Is that when others curse, you bless them. That's what Jesus commanded us to do. And there's a part of me when he said that, or even when I read the scriptures, and maybe you're like me too in this, that when I, when I hear Jesus say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless the ones who curse you. My like heart, my reaction to this idea of loving an enemy is not holy. <laughs> it's unbecoming of a man of God, but it is the true reaction I have. It's like, oh, oh God, come on, man. Like, you don't, I know, you don't, you don't want us to have no boundaries. You don't want me to be weak. Maybe that's your reaction. Maybe that's your initial thought. To love an enemy, to bless those who curse me, that is weakness. But God doesn't want me to be weak. So how do I justify not being weak but still loving enemies? Uh, and we try and figure out how, we try this math equation of like, well, I love them because I prayed for them uh, one time. And I said, Lord, may they come to find you and know you so that they will stop doing the things they're doing to me. <laughs> Sound familiar? There, I love them. 
I am just like you, Jesus. <laughs> but he asked for something so much deeper than that. I'm like, no, that's weak. I don't want to be weak. That's not possible. I shouldn't be weak. But when I slow down and I give time to actually respond and not just react, I sit with him and let him speak. I see that, no, he doesn't want me to be weak. He wants me to recognize how weak I already am. You're already weak, Brian. You're already weak. And then, and then, I'm filled with gratitude, an unending gratitude for his mercy and grace. I am so weak, but you, Father, and you're still here. Ah, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. When I see how weak I am and how good he is to me, uh, even in the midst of my weakness, it, it shifts my eyes so that I see others as he does. It shifts my eyes so I can actually have compassion for others, even those who hate me. When I see my weakness and the mountain of mercy and grace it takes to redeem me, then when I see them in their hate, I can see them as they are and their hate as an expression of their weakness and need for mercy and grace, just like me. When we realize how weak we are, we will be more inclined to surrender to God's loving arms and the power of his spirit and his will and purpose for our life to be defined by him, a chosen people. I am chosen by him. I was not a, a, a part of the people of God, but now I am. I did not receive mercy, but now I have received mercy. So now I am free to priest. I'm free to bring God's love and light into this world. And really, that's not weakness. That's not weakness. Because I'm called to come under others, not to be crushed. God doesn't call us to be crushed. He calls us to come under and lift others up to him. That is not a weak thing. That is an amazingly and divinely powerful thing. And that can only be done with Jesus. And that is priesting. To come under others and lift them up no matter who they are. Lift them up to God. That sort of strength only comes from him. Band, you guys want to make your way up? That'd be great. So, God, the great mason, is building a temple. And Christ Jesus is the cornerstone upon who all the rest of us can be aligned and positioned. And God uses every stone. Strains, protrusions, cracks, coloring. He knows how to use us and make us meaningful. And he has just the right spot for your life to be lived and eternally built upon. See this collection of stones right here, guys? Like, look around. Look at this collection of stones right here in this room. We are being built. We are not yet complete. We are a work in progress, but God does not start things he won't finish. He has counted the cost. He knows what it will take, and he has chosen you and me to be a part of what he's building. Among us, together, So until that day, when our life is over and the, the boulder of our life has been settled into its place by God, we 
are priesting. Hope cannot be lost because we are his and he finishes what he starts. And so we priest bringing others into that same hope and reality. We're pointing others to the temple that is being built within us and through us and calling them to align their life to the cornerstone. We're practicing our priestly duties, bringing God into the places he is needed and petitioning God on behalf of others, lifting them up to him. Righteous living is an opportunity, not a burden a grace given to us by God so we may fulfill our purpose as his temple and as his royal priests. God loves you. He has a good plan for you. He's not done with you. Hang in there. Hang in there. Father God, we love you. We love you, knowing that even before we love you, you first loved us. Man, that's wild. I ask, Lord, that you would show yourself. Show yourself faithful to us even when we're in that little boat on the lake. (laughs) May we see you when we look back and be encouraged for what is to come and in this place right here and now be filled with hope and moved to act to bring others into that same hope. Lord, build us as you see fit, not as we do, Our lives, our hearts, our stones in your faithful and masterful hands. Have your way, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.